Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. Hey guys, David here. This is kicking off the second lecture in a series of exploring the topic of theology and culture. So we're looking primarily through the lens of a Baptist theologian named Stanley Grenz, who produced a lot of his most impactful and noteworthy publications during the 1990s and early 2000s, before his untimely death in 2005 uh, at the young age of just 55. Um, So these lectures, just a little caveat and warning, are being produced for a discussion-based course that our church is running. And we're just choosing to make them available for anyone to listen to. So if you're jumping into this, highly recommend going back to the beginning. And then also just a forewarning, this is pretty cognitive, pretty rational, pretty heady, pretty academic content. And I think I'm under the conviction that there's extremely personal and emotional implications of it. But, yeah, just giving that caveat at the start. So, with that said, I'm going to say a little prayer, and then we'll dive in. So, Jesus, I just ask that you would guide my words as I try to guide us through a lot of history, a lot of philosophy, a lot of content today. And we just submit our minds to you, Holy Spirit. Would you guide and speak and... um, connect this information to our hearts and our bodies and we just say we entrust ourselves to you god that if you're the foundation of reality we do not need to be afraid of the shaking of the foundations because when all falls away you will still remain amen so the problem so i think the cultural moment we find ourselves in or the period of human history that we live in one of the big problems facing all of us. And I would say this applies to all people, those who are trying to follow Jesus and those who would see themselves as non-religious or of a different religion. The big problem, psychologically, we're all being exposed to this intense plurality on an unprecedented level. So globalism, technology, the social sciences, philosophy, you know, there's a lot of streams pouring into this river. But this plurality has been exposed and now we're forced to deal with it in a way that no one in human history has ever had to. And then you add technology and some of the strange algorithmic um, bending of reality that happens through social media and the internet, let alone not to even mention fake news and all that. And psychologically, this is a disorienting and challenging time. And so as apprentices of Jesus, we're forced to make, really the question is, how are we to maintain confidence in what we believe, even confidence in our decision that this story, above all other stories about Jesus Christ coming into the world, should be believed? Um, And should we even be confident in that? So, Stanley Grenz was a Baptist theologian, as I just mentioned, and I think he observed that many Christians, under the title of evangelical Christians, which we'll define a bit today, their choice of response to this challenge in the last 20 years was to 
increase their their grip on what they believed. So their knuckles clenched and got white and tight to defend it and preserve it and protect it from the pressures that they felt culture was imposing on them. And after all, like we'd reviewed in the first lecture, um, this isn't just cognitive beliefs, right? These, these become, for all humans, the core beliefs that form and shape our identity, what we do, what we have, what others think of us. So in contrast to that, Stanley Grenz will kind of emerge in the 1990s as a, a leader and a voice in, within academia and in um, a lot of networks of different seminary institutions across America. He'll emerge as a voice that is choosing to almost humbly embrace a lot of the critiques that pluralism brings and then see if Christian theology can provide an answer to help explain even this sense of disorientation and fragmentation that a lot of us might feel. So rather than trying to defend it, he almost embraces it and lets these questions come and you know break on the shores of, of the church and of the heritage and traditions and the scriptures themselves to see what Christianity has to offer to this cultural moment. And in order for his solution to even make sense, we need to spend a good amount of time today just defining some frameworks and some background, kind of setting the stage, so to speak, historically and conceptually. So one first comment on some context here, uh, just giving a framework for thinking about philosophy. In the discipline of philosophy, which is an ancient discipline within the academy, uh, you have four basic categories. Some people might say three, but um, I think I'd argue four. The first foundational category is metaphysics or ontology. So this is reality as it is, apart from human perception of it. So this is uh, atoms and energy and matter, uh, dark matter, you know, whatever um, is on the cutting edge of physics. This is what the field of physics is actually trying to explore and understand. And um, so reality as it is. And then you have the field of epistemology, which is essentially a very anthropological field. So it's trying to understand how our human faculties, our senses, our cognition, how we as humans are able to perceive, engage, and map that reality. So how do we know what we know? Is what we know reliable? Um, in the first lecture, I talked about this as a big goal of this course to help provide a map of your external world, your culture and um, the reality outside of you, and then also hopefully equip you with a compass that is kind of an internal uh, confidence in your ability to trust your map and then use your map, right? So this course in general is a course in epistemology or theological epistemology which is often known as the field of theological method. Um, and then next, after epistemology, we have the field of pedagogy, which is kind of how do we share that knowledge about reality with others. So it's the philosophy of teaching. Um, and then lastly, once we've been taught, once we've mapped reality and we understand it and we've shared it with others, now we have a community of people and how are we supposed to live? This is the field of ethics in philosophy. So that's, those are four words that might come up at varying points just to give you kind of uh, 
a basic movement of how knowledge flows from reality to our knowledge of reality to sharing that knowledge with others to how do we then live in the world. And I'd maybe add into the field of ethics a subcategory for um, almost the emotional effective part of our humanity, right? How are we to feel? How are we to um, fear and desire, right? All right. So next topic, just introducing who was Stanley Grand. So he died in 2005, tragically uh, in his sleep. It was kind of out of nowhere. Uh, I believe it was a brain aneurysm. But at the time, he was, he was dubbed by many as the leading thinker and academic theologian within evangelicalism. And I'll put that in air quotes for now until we define it. But he was the son of a Baptist minister. He embodied a deep he had this deep pietistic impulse that pietism, we'll talk about again today, was a renewal movement within Protestantism that sought to retrieve the emotions and affections and in some ways connect the heart to the head. Uh, so anytime you hear people say that, oh, I just need to get this information from my head to my heart, that's a, that's a pietistic sentiment um, that's lingering and carrying on from some movements within Great Britain and Germany in the 17th century. So, uh, Stan, um, some of these facts I haven't reviewed in a while, but I'm pretty sure they're accurate. I think he studied physics and philosophy. Uh, or he was a physics major at University of Colorado Boulder. And then sometime during his years in college, he had uh, an encounter or some experience uh, of intimate interaction with God. And he ended up course correcting and changing what he felt like he was supposed to do. And I think he decided... He felt a call to be a pastor. And so he went back to UC Boulder and he changed his major from physics to philosophy. And then upon graduation, went right into seminary at Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary, which has now been renamed and is known as Denver Seminary, um, just down in Littleton in Colorado here. And after uh, graduation, he was ordained as a Baptist minister. Um served as a pastor, I believe, of one or two different churches, and then eventually went on to do his doctoral studies in Germany under a renowned, one of the most renowned German scholars of the 20th century, a guy named Wolfhart Pannenberg, which is just a name for the ages, Wolfhart Pannenberg. Um, and by the mid-90s, he had made his academic and his, his kind of goals of publication really clear. He was seeking to revise and renew evangelical theology for the postmodern age. And primarily, this was an epistemological revision um, on a strictly doctrinal level of just what did Grenz believe. If you read his systematic theology, uh, there's nothing that radical or crazy about the, the confessional beliefs he held to and interpreted from Scripture. So a lot of his revision was more around epistemology, this, this concept of theological method and how beliefs form within uh, human brains and human communities. And he was troubled in the 90s, especially by both conservative evangelicalism's kind of marriage to and affinity with more modern, outdated modes of epistemology, of almost more simplistic models of truth. So he was very critical of conservative evangelicalism. And then he was also critical of progressive evangelicalism, which was, he felt, 
fast and loose with their approach to both scripture and, and by and large, kind of totally abandoned church tradition. And he was marked with this almost curious optimism that actually postmodern shifts in culture were fundamentally a critique of modernity, which again we'll define today, um, and not Christianity, which was by and large a pre-modern movement. So if you could think of it this way, uh, I think this is my metaphor and analogy, but Gren saw you know, modern American Protestant Christianity as this ball of Play-Doh. And it was mixed with two colors. There was the biblical, theological, historical, orthodox part of its theology. And then there was this other color, um, maybe that's blue, and then there was another color, yellow, that was mixed in with that ball and had been rolled up in it. And it was primarily a cultural form of Christianity that had been adopted starting in the 16th, 17th century with um, the emergence of the modern age. And he saw post-modernity acting as almost a like a sieve. When you were a kid, if you ever played with Play-Doh and you could put all the Play-Doh in this little container and then squeeze this clamp down and it would squirt out the side into some shape like a star or a moon or a circle. And I think Grenz conceived of post-modernity functioning much like a sieve that... Um, would allow would allow American evangelicalism to not only take new form, but somehow in there actually postmodernity was like a highly intelligent sieve that knew to only filter out one color um, or one type of Play-Doh. So he saw it almost combing through and critiquing the mo- the modern parts of our Christianity leaving behind actually a more vibrant, beautiful, um, biblical, orthodox version of Christianity. Um, Yeah, and he, as you could imagine, was critiqued quite heavily for this positive engagement with postmodernism. And I think there's, there's merit in the critiques and the fears. You know, I think many feared that his embrace of postmodernity would would doom Christianity to, uh, to losing a sense of reliability or truth or trust in the scripture or the beliefs that it holds. Um, and I think Grenz thought that he was able to navigate through that and still maintain a level of confidence, which is what we'll be exploring in this course. And the last thing we'll say about him is his fundamental paradigm shift that he was kind of drawing from not only post-modernity, but from theologians outside of America, um, and specifically American evangelicalism. His primary paradigm shift was an embrace of the social nature of personhood and knowledge. And this is evident in Grenz's continual focus in his writings on the, the concept of community, which eventually will develop by the mature kind of final books that he's writing into his doctrine of the Imago Dei. And Imago Dei is just a Latin phrase. Um, It's a Latin translation of this concept that emerges at the beginning of Scripture in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 of human beings being created in the image of God, uh, image bearers. And it will be picked up again in the New Testament by Paul, uh, seen almost as a, a concept of fulfillment, as Christ fulfilling our, our 
God-given role to bear his image. And now we have the Imago Christi, the image of Christ, which is revealing what God is like to us. Um, So that is Stan Grenz and kind of the direction of where we're going today. Uh, This lecture, again, will kind of define some terms, provide some historical context for modernity, postmodernity, and evangelicalism, if that word's even viable anymore. The next lecture will give a summary of Grenz's theology and method. Uh, Lecture 4 will explore his epistemology and his concept of truth. Lecture 5 will explore his use of the Imago Dei to demonstrate the sufficiency of God's action with humanity. And then the final lecture will hopefully be a brief one, just giving some final summary comments. So, all right, let's dive into some of these terms. So, First up is modernism, and we're kind of going chronologically here. Um, But modernism or modernity, there's a generally accepted kind of monolithic narrative that begins in the 17th century in Europe. And this era of modernity will become marked by certain characteristics, like an emphasis on individuality, objective observation, rationality, skepticism about the world and the traditions that have been passed down, uh, the dominant, the dominant uh, religion, or, or not explicitly a religion, but the dominant way of, of building trust and, and discovering truth will become scientific empiricism, uh, which will arise as the universally accepted um, form of, of discovering truth. And scientific empiricism is, quite simply, it's relying on sensory data and conducting what most of us experienced in ninth grade physical science as the scientific method. So forming hypotheses, conducting experiments, isolating certain variables as kind of our, our independent variable and controlling everything else, and then measuring observable outcome of dependent variables, right? So that we can make statements about causality. And that will arise as, you know, a much more trustworthy form of knowledge than traditions or religions in this age. And in many ways, this modernity is preceded by um, a movement of, a different kind of movement of renewal of the rediscovery of ancient texts and languages. So we're coming out of the medieval era and we have this Renaissance movement, a rediscovery of the humanities, of the arts of Greek and Hebrew and um, other ancient texts from the Roman and Greek empires. And um, that will be this rediscovery of these original sources And that contributes to the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, which all kind of spirals into um, this emergence of the modern age. And in many ways, post-Reformation in Western Europe, there's a lot of renewal and beautiful things happening within the church, but there's also a lot of instability and infighting happening. We have almost a hundred years of religious wars and bloodshed and families being split, countries being torn apart. Um, I mean, 
the United Kingdom alone is back and forth from one ruler to the next of almost warring over this Roman Catholic versus Protestant debate. And in many ways, I think we have to empathize with the, the culture and the time of modernity because they were desperate for a foundation they could trust. They were desperate for something that could unify uh, people across these diverging lines that was had very real implications in their lives of, of civil wars and, and violence. And um, yeah, so Francis Bacon is kind of this famous philosopher, thinker, and he's known for this promoting this idea of like humanity's purpose is to discover nature's secrets. And I think two other key people to just place in this time period are a philosopher named Rene Descartes, who is a follower of Jesus, by the way, I should add. Um, and he's famous, this famous little line that he says, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And essentially, Descartes had, you know, he was, he was, probably like many of us feel disoriented and not sure who he could trust or what he could trust. And so he did this thought experiment that he wrote about where he sought to doubt and and deconstruct everything he had once trusted. And at the end of the day, he realized that he could not deconstruct past the fact that he himself is a human who is existing and thinking. He is a doubting creature. And so he, in some ways, deconstructed all the way back to the center of the human psyche and said, hey, at least at the end of the day, I still know I am sitting here in this room having this conversation in my head and I cannot escape that reality. I can trust that that is fact. And which sounds maybe ridiculous to us um, unless you're prone to philosophical musing. But what it did was it seeded the human mind and the human rationality, and not only that, but an individual human mind at the center and foundation of reliable truth. And upon this kind of philosophical framework that Descartes provides, we have figures like Isaac Newton, um, who are developing you know, theories of calculus and physics that allow us to now put objective Cartesian axes and map them all over our world. And in some ways, Newton gives the tools and framework in calculus and other forms of scientific inquiry he develops to actually carry out this modern project of scientific empirical um, observation. And, and really this age is defined as this pursuit of objective knowledge uh, and a leaving behind a shedding of, you know, the traditions and the things that we can't trust that we had inherited. Um, and in many ways, I wonder if it's not all that different than what a lot of us are desiring or feeling in our psyches. This desire to reconstruct something reliable and trustworthy in an age of infighting and polarization. And the, the dominant epistemology or, you know, understanding of how knowledge works uh, this is going to be simplistic, but it's kind of known as foundationalism. And it's this really kind of obvious idea of building more complex beliefs or truths upon more basic observable truths. So we take, you know, the simple things that we can all agree on 
and then we add those together and we build more complex truths and beliefs to help us actually function. And in day-to-day life, this is a logical, observable um, form of being, right? Of we recognize certain things as true or false and then it guides our behaviors. And this is often known as a correspondence or this is with the foundationalist epistemology, a theory of truth known as correspondence theory is often kind of incorporated into it. And basic correspondence theory just says, you know, what is truth? It is, it is linguistic verification to reality. So it's simple statements uh, like there is a laptop sitting on my desk and then I have another observer come and they can attest and confirm that that verbal statement I made with language corresponds or maps the reality that we perceive with our senses in front of us. And in day-to-day life, this makes total sense. I think uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who would disagree with that. But when we get into some of the complexities of this and we shift from talking about more objective things like laptops and desks and we start talking about Um, belief in God or values and ethics and morality, we can see where it gets very complex quickly because there might not be agreement upon what words mean. The only reason that statement is obvious that my computer is on my desk is because we agree what the word desk and what the word computer refer to. But when we step into these Um, higher level thinking realms of things like theology and ethics, uh, agreement of language becomes a lot more complex. And then when you start going into other cultures and you start changing languages and the way that affects people's perception of reality, it gets more complex still. So in in day-to-day life, foundationalism and correspondence theory are pretty obvious and logical, but in extreme philosophical forms and in theology, it can lead to kind of this artificial building of unquestionable certainty, and it can tend to create very dogmatic approaches to knowledge and beliefs, um, which can be really unhelpful. So, modernity. Moving right along into post-modernity. So, unlike the simple, kind of agreed-upon narrative of modernity, this is in many ways a reaction movement or a reaction ethos against modernity's dogmatic certainty about the world. So think of it more as a pulling apart of all the unquestionably certain systems and structures and narratives that modernity fought so hard to build up. And this is often dated to the end of World War II, um, but in many ways it it has roots and continuity clearly going back to movements like romanticism, existentialism, and, and the thought worlds of, of philosophers and writers like Ludwig Wittgenstein, who we'll talk about in a minute, and Karl Marx and Nietzsche. So in many ways, this, this movement clearly emerges on like a pop culture and a public level in around the late 1970s and 1980s. Um, but the, the thought world that fuels it is much older. I mean, even going back to people like Immanuel Kant and other philosophers in you know, the centuries leading up to the modern age. So 
Um, the first explicit use of the word postmodern um, was by Jean-Francois Lyotard. I hope I'm saying that right. He's a French philosopher, uh, and he published a work called The Postmodern Condition in 1979. And in many ways, he identifies that uh, postmodernity is almost a hypermodernity. It's it's that the scientific skepticism that had been focused on discovering nature's secrets, you know, breaking apart the atom, breaking apart um, the animal world through Darwinian evolution and theories of all those things, um, that scientific skepticism that was focused on the world and, and deconstructing, you know, human cultures and traditions now turned in on itself and began to critique and deconstruct the very scientists and philosophers who had come up with these theories. So in a sense, it's a, it's a collapsing or an eating of Descartes' human confidence and optimism about the individual self's ability to objectively map and understand the world in a neutral way. And, and in some ways, as we talked about earlier as I defined metaphysics and epistemology, postmodernism is in some ways a severing of the tie between those two. So think about it. Modernity is built on this assumption that human beings have the faculties and capacity to discover reality as it is. And postmodernity is almost the rejection of that basic assumption that actually we are so trapped in our cultures, our bias, our subjectivities that at best we're, we're creating a foggy version of what reality actually is. And we're kind of left isolated in these, um, these linguistic narratives and myths and beliefs and biases and we're just stuck there. Which is why to many people um, the, logical, the logical implication of a lot of postmodern philosophy and thought is fatalism and um, almost this depressed, despondent kind of reaction to the world, almost like a, uh, you know, there's kind of a few options here, just give up and and quit or um, drink and be merry and embrace a more happiness-focused, kind of pleasure-focused, almost, um, yeah, form of philosophy, which is not anything new. We can look throughout the history of philosophy and see these movements that just kind of gave up and chose indulgence and pleasure as their their driving, you know, purpose in life. So that is post-modernity. Um, if modernity was kind of framed out by Rene Descartes and Isaac Newton, post-modernity is kind of framed by Ludwig Wittgenstein and then Einstein and quantum mechanics. So Wittgenstein, contra contrasting to Descartes, um, Wittgenstein kind of promoted this concept of something called language games. And it was the idea that essentially our perceptions of reality and our concepts of truth are built by communities that create this basic linguistic system to describe the reality, or as he called it, language games. Um, and in some ways, uh, a social unit of people construct their own version of truth, and it is relative to that community and group. 
and um, and then you have Isaac, or sorry, uh, you have Einstein coming along, you know, shattering Newtonian mechanics and proving to some extent that even the things in nature that we thought were objective and immovable, things like time and space, the basic map of reality, uh, Einstein shows that even those are relative to your your frame of reference and the speed at which the observer is moving. And then you have the field of quantum mechanics emerging um, through a brilliant physicist named uh, Irving Schrodinger. And Schrodinger, along with many others, helps reveal that at the heart of the atom is actually not certainty but uncertainty. Uh, we have probability distributions and actually we can never quite predict with certainty how an atom will respond or what an electron will do. And we have people like Heisenberg, another physicist, and his uncertainty principle stating that you can either know an object's location or you can know its speed, but you can't know both. And so again, that sounds like kind of nerdy science, but that is having ramifications and implications and changing the very philosophy of how people think and how we perceive reality. And it's, um, it has a lot of implications that carry over into fields like anthropology, sociology, theology. Um, so that's the postmodern age. It is in many ways a hyper-modernity where the, the critical observation tactics of science have now come full circle and they are eating themselves and, uh, and fragmenting these trusted systems of thought. All right, so that gives us a sense of even the cultural moment um, we are in, and I think in the beginning of the 21st century, in many ways, we are in many ways seeking to cope with that exposure and the truth that a lot of postmodernity's claims, you know, I think a lot of the claims of postmodernity ring true to us and to our observation, especially in a world of plurality and um, being exposed to all the, yeah, all of that. So, in many ways, it's very accurate, and now we are finding ourselves at a cultural moment where people are striving to find something stable to hold on to, and um, and we're seeing lots of different responses and ways that people try to do that. So, next term, which we'll come back to later, but next term, evangelicalism or isms. So it may it may seem laughable to you to even try and define this term. Uh, in the current cultural context, the varying uses, whether boasting or condemning it, uh, <laughs> they kind of have turned it into a very unhelpful term. But I think it's important for our context to explore it a little in a, from a few different angles because the writings were engaging of Stanley Grenz come out of the 90s and the early 2000s where that term was very much alive and... Um, had more historical, definable meaning to it. So, let me give you at least four ways to think about this term, and then we'll talk about American evangelicalism as a historical movement uh, that if you're listening to this, you've probably been 
affected by, to some degree, and arguably any American has been affected by American evangelicalism. So the first use of the term is it's biblical. This word evangelical uh, derives from a Greek word that's used in some of the Gospels and in Paul's letters. Um, it's a Greek word evangelion, and it translates quite literally just as good news and or gospel. And in, in this sense, anyone who receives and believes the historical claim that God became a man in Jesus Christ is in this biblical sense of the word an evangelical. Uh, if you believe and receive that Jesus brought good news, then uh, there is an evangelical impetus and, and um, belief at the core of your thinking theologically. So that's the biblical use. Second, we have a theological use of this term evangelical. And this is where different groups and communities and thinkers have tried to expand in a bit more depth on the meaning and implications of this good news. So Jesus is who he said he was. He's God. And thus, um, anyone who attempts to maintain the centrality of Christ now has to work out the implications of this new creation that Christ thought he was inaugurating, concepts like the kingdom of God, and and now we start getting into things like ethics and other fields of theology. Um, So there's this theological use that is almost the bearing out the implications of the biblical use of the word. And those, again, those two uses of this word are, I don't think they can be claimed or Um, owned by any one group of people historically or denominationally or culturally. I think they are are, um, universal terms in that sense or universal applications of the word. Third, we have historical uses of the word evangelical, which is when specific movements or groups of people have then explicitly identified with the term evangelical. Um, And this goes throughout church history and is not limited to the American context by any means. And then fourthly, we could say sociologically. So this is kind of trying to observe Christian communities as a scientist, not as a participant, and just survey the body of Christ and um, observe that any community or church or denomination or movement within Christianity, geographically diverse, historically diverse, who is trying to prioritize the biblical and theological uses or the biblical concept of the gospel, of belief in Christ and the implications of that for the world at large, are on some level observably evangelical, right? So those four uses, biblical, theological, historical, and sociological, I think can be helpful ways to, even if you're in a conversation with someone talking about the term, just asking them, well, what, what do you mean by that term? Or, How are you defining that term? And those are helpful categories. Now, the movement of American evangelicalism, capital A, capital E, in many ways is is a blend of all four of these. And as a self-conscious movement, it emerges just after World War II. And again, just for sake of clarity, Stanley Granz, who we're studying, was born into this movement. He's born in the 1950s. um, And his father is a Baptist uh, preacher. And beyond a close identification with the New Testament church and a priority for scripture, um, evangelicalism as a movement might have some 
you might find people within it during this era who are making some references back to, you know, a couple church history figures like St. Augustine or something like that. But more or less, the primary defining narrative for American evangelicalisms is that they are carrying on the faith of the Protestant Reformation, uh, which was a 16th century kind of movement of renewal and reform breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church in Europe. And Protestantism is marked by these things known as the solas in Latin. Uh, So it's an emphasis on salvation and transformation through faith and grace and a priority for the glory of God and Christ alone and scripture alone. So these five solas become kind of the defining markers of Uh, Protestantism, and in reality, very quickly, the Protestant movement had its own plurality pretty much from the start. We have movements uh, like Lutheranism coming out of Germany, Calvinism coming out of just south, out of um, kind of Switzerland and France and uh, the Netherlands, and then we have Anabaptism, which is kind of this offshoot sect of people who felt like the, the other two movements of Lutheranism and Calvinism were not going far enough. They weren't going back to pure Christianity. They were only going back 200 years or 600 years. And the Anabaptists believed you needed to go all the way back to the New Testament um, to find the pure church. And then eventually in the UK, we have the emergence of Anglicanism as kind of this middle way between Roman Catholicism and these other Protestant movements. And from here and from whatever church background you grew up in, um, there's probably even an unspoken identification with one of these four streams of Protestantism, assuming you didn't grow up Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox. And from here forward, the kind of historical narrative of evangelicalism probably diverges and differs depending on the type of church you grew up in or have associated with in adulthood, right? So there's, here's a few more key movements that happen in Protestantism for, that are relevant for those living in America. The first one is, so we have 16th century Protestant Reformation. 17th century, we have the emergence on the continent and over in the UK of two movements, British Puritanism and German Pietism. And both of these are seeking to renew what, what these people perceive to be kind of the cold, rational, sterile theology that the Reformation left, left them. So they're trying to renew this, this heartfelt affection and love for God um, and this personal pietism, this personal holiness and dedication. Um, and those two movements both spill over into... Um, America through a movement in the 18th century known as the First Great Awakening. And it starts in Britain, spills over to the Americas, and there's already whole colonies of um, German pietists and British Puritans who had fled Europe from persecution and settled in America. And, um, and this First Great Awakening is marked by this intense spiritual fervor. 
and it's led by people like George Whitfield, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, and and really they're adding to these earlier Protestant values of like the solas and then this renewed heartfelt pietism. They're adding this impulse to of mass evangelism and public repentance, uh, followed by a radical call to discipline. Um, you know, denominations like the Methodist Church will emerge from this movement um, because, and that name even comes from you know this intense discipline that especially John Wesley advocated for Christian discipleship. And Wesley, by his own identification, died as an Anglican minister. He wasn't seeking to start a new denomination or movement, um, but in the end he did. And the next century following, we have the Second Great Awakening in the 19th century, another spread of mass evangelism, this time accompanied by new models and modes of ministry. Um, there were almost this these revival-type outbreaks of signs and wonders and healings and um, manifestations of the spiritual uh, part of Christianity. And um, in many ways, this kind of leads to all these movements of Protestantism happening across America and people and in Europe, and people start to desire to see them brought together because they don't want to see this fragmentation happening um, and, for example, we have things like in 1846, there's an evangelical alliance formed in Great Britain. That's, I think, the first time in this modern couple hundred years where that word is used as like a, a label, um, trying to organize these varying movements that have emerged out of these itinerant preachers going from Britain to the United States and um, starting all these different movements. So... That's a little history, and again, depending on your background and exposure and denomination you grew up in, you might have never heard of some of those movements, or you might have only heard about certain movements. Um, so, for example, in the missionary organization that I spent five or six years working with and still am connected to, there's a, a strong connection to kind of these these revivalist uh, type ministers from the first and second great awakening. So it's not simply Protestantism. The basic theology is still in line with Protestantism from the Reformation, but added to it is this this passion of uh, evangelism and seeing conversion of mass amounts of people. So there's a famous uh, writer who, trying to look across American evangelicalism and just describe what he observed as the consistent um, kind of pillars of this historical movement that emerges uh, post-World War II. And he refers to them as, uh, it's often known as Bebbington's Quadrilateral. The guy's name is David Bebbington. And so the, the four distinctive things that I think are helpful, if you've been a part of a church community or if you personally hold to these four values, then whether you identify with the term or not, you've been influenced by American evangelicalism. So the four markers are an emphasis on the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus to bring salvation to humanity, an emphasis on personal conversion. This is where you get phrases like being born again. So there's this dramatic encounter or experience where you were one way and now after this moment you're another way. 
and you've chosen to follow Jesus. Then there's an extreme emphasis and priority given to the Bible as the source document of truth and all of life. And then lastly, there's an emphasis on evangelism and the sharing of the gospel with others in hopes of leading people through those first three of encountering the cross, converting themselves, and then discovering the truth of the Bible. And in the 20th century, some of these advances uh, that we referenced, like with uh, in science with Einstein and uh, relativity and quantum mechanics, and then you have Darwinian evolution um, really hitting a mass scale of being taught in public schools, and and these scientific theories are challenging and putting pressure on some of these Protestant Christians and their beliefs about the scriptures and their beliefs about reality and the story they believe in, right? And then you add to that, in Europe, there's kind of this movement of text, what's known as textual criticism that is, again, something that wouldn't have been done in earlier days of the academy. They're treating the scriptures, the, the Bible, as just any old historical book, and they're applying scientific methodology to to kind of deconstruct this book and observe, you know, all these other factors and things. Um, And essentially what happens is you have a lot of Protestants from different movements and camps feeling these cultural pressures as a threat to their Christianity. And there's a series of essays published called The Fundamentals. This is in, I think, the 1920s or just before. And... One of the most important essays is one that defines the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. And in many ways, the attempt here, if you can imagine it, is built on this modern concept of truth that if, if more complex truths have to be based on more observable, agreeable, simple truths that are universal, well, as a Christian, what is the source of your universally agreed upon truths? It has to be the scriptures. It's the only thing that we universally share. And so this doctrine of biblical inerrancy, um, in order for your confidence in your faith, in your more complex beliefs, to be warranted, you need to defend the argument that that Bible is perfectly true in all matters and cannot be false. Um, Which again, you can see where this is kind of a a vicious cycle, a feedback loop, where the more the culture starts to challenge and critique um, certain interpretations and readings of the Bible around simple things like creation, the more the culture is critiquing that, the more important it becomes uh, for someone who holds to biblical inerrancy to defend that fact and defend that doctrine. Um, Because if, if some parts of this book or library of books are proven false, well, the whole house of cards begins to fall. So that's kind of the epistemological structure going on under the hood uh, to try and defend Christianity's beliefs from these pressures of culture. And then in post-World War II days, you have the emergence of some academics, a guy named Harold Ockinga and another named Carl F.H. Henry, who emerge and essentially what they seek to do is revision and recast evangelicalism, American evangelicalism as we know it in the modern age, or at least up until maybe 10 years ago, as we knew it for about 50 years. And their goal was to navigate 
this this tension between what they saw as fundamentalism and this like defensive reaction against culture and also liberalism which was kind of a completely letting go of the authority of church traditions and the the biblical scriptures um Billy Graham is kind of the public face of this new era and movement of American evangelicalism. And they sought to consciously cast the tent pegs very wide to make this tent as large as possible to allow for a great plurality of denominations and people with different um, experiences and histories to come and unify under this umbrella. And... Again, based off our definition from Bebington of emphasizing the cross, conversion, Bible, and evangelism, there's a lot of other denominations and groups that would, in the contours of their movement, actually fit the title of evangelical, even if they didn't explicitly claim it. So movements like Pentecostalism that emerged in the early 1900s and uh, the black church in America, the Mennonites, who are kind of an offshoot of the Anabaptist movement, Southern Baptists, uh, holiness churches, the Nazarene church, even some uh, branches of the Lutheran church in America. In many ways, they fit these four values of um, the evangelical movement, even if they didn't explicitly identify. Okay, and so, to close here, I think having established some definitions of these terms and maybe setting the stage for the current cultural moment that we live in, um, why, why I think this is at all relevant or important for uh, people trying to follow Jesus in America is because traditionally within Christianity, within politics, within lots of categories of thought, there's a spectrum painted between conservatism and liberalism. Um, at a very brief summary, Conservatism is always seeking to preserve traditions, preserve the past. Uh, liberalism is always trying to press the envelope to, to progress for the new future that's coming, to adapt, to change. Um, and I think within evangelicalism, American evangelicalism as a historic movement, and within really any of our experiences with the church, uh, consistently... I think people are identifying as either on consciously or, or whether they're unaware of it on one end of that spectrum or as self-consciously trying to bridge the tension in between. And But the category of what people mean when they talk about conservative and liberal, typically it is, it is in reference to beliefs and, and confessional beliefs or doctrines, opinions, and again, that idea applies to theology, but it also applies to things like politics. You know, what's your political party? What, what confessional beliefs do you have? I mean, you drive around your neighborhood and um, you see signs in people's yards, and it's very fascinating to observe that many of those signs, they're almost creedal in nature, right? People stating their beliefs. In this house, we believe this, 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 and this. So there's this, even in our modern-day politics, there's this religious tone of conservatism or liberalism. Um, and that's, that's a helpful framework, I think, to have. I don't think we'll get rid of that anytime soon. But there's this great book written by a man named Stephen B. Sherman 
where he talks about Grands. I, I heavily dove into it for this research project. It's called Revitalizing Theological Epistemology. And essentially, his book makes the argument that there's not only a theological spectrum between what people think they believe and um, the, the confessional statements they have of conservatives or liberals, but there is also an epistemological spectrum of how people see their beliefs forming and how they see truth functioning. And what's so fascinating about adding that spectrum on top of the other one is we don't just have a uh, a one-dimensional spectrum. Now we have two dimensions where I think all of us could attest that we know people who might, with their beliefs, whether political or theological, be very opinionated on one side or the other. But in the way they live out those beliefs and the way they try to push them on others or the way they think that those beliefs should function or how obvious they think those beliefs should be to everyone who has eyes to see, um, we actually see people on both sides who might have the same epistemology. And what I mean by this is on both ends of the political spectrum or the theological spectrum, often the groups start to sound like each other and their attitudes, their dispositions, their treatment of how they, how they view others almost starts to look the same, even though what they're saying, the basic content and rhetoric is very different. Um, and I think that's because of what Sherman is seeing, that there's actually not only what you think you believe, but then there's how you came to believe it and how you think you believe it. So there's this epistemological spectrum going on as well. And Sherman pretty much outlines within evangelicalism that there's this huge divide about how we understand the sources of our beliefs as Christians and the sources of our doctrines. So he classifies them into two groups. The first group he calls the traditionalists, And a traditionalist is concerned, like the conservative, uh, with preserving the original inherited form of American evangelicalism. And the traditionalist has a modern epistemology that is grounded in a more simplistic framework of foundationalism. Um, Again, foundationalism is this basic belief that, uh, or this, this framework that beliefs are formed linearly, starting with the simplest kind of undeniable beliefs or universal beliefs. And then from those, we build upward in a linear form and construct more complex beliefs. And so for uh, a conservative American evangelical who is has a traditionalist epistemology, it is tantamount. It is the most important thing that you defend the inerrancy and the objective truth of a document like the Bible. Because if you concede any flaw or uh, subjectivity in that process, the whole pyramid of doctrines and beliefs and everything they trust and everything um, you hold as part of your identity of who you are starts to be threatened. Um, And then on the other side, Sherman outlines who he calls the post-conservatives. And they are, or we could call them, um, I'm spacing on the other name, but I'll come back to it in a later lecture. So the post-conservatives who seek to renew evangelicalism in its American form that they inherited, even if it means forsaking parts of that 
culture. And um, I'll just read here quick from, let's see, this is from a man named Clark Pinnock, who certainly would be classified as a post-conservative, not a traditionalist. And he outlines nine distinctives that mark uh, this post-conservative movement, this kind of um, group of thinkers and people who are wanting to who are wanting to purge their American Christianity of kind of the cultural modern um, epistemologies. Here's the traits he offers. Post-conservative theology is marked by a, a letting go of firm inerrancy and likely replacing it with more concepts of biblical inspiration and still holding on to biblical authority, but letting go of firm inerrancy doctrines. They embrace theological diversity from a varying group of um, denominations. They value tradition uh, in the sense of like the whole tradition of church history. There's potentially a need for a more open view of God. Uh, we won't get into that much. They likely accept theories of evolution and don't see them as conflicting or threatening to their understanding of Genesis 1. They're more inclusive on views of salvation. Um, they have more social, they're more socially minded to topics of social justice in the culture. They're more open to the supernatural or as I would call charismatic. And then they function with an ecumenical generosity, meaning they are not quick to demonize or assert other theological traditions uh, as lesser than the one that they've chosen to identify with and practice with. Um, so more generically, this post-conservative signals a movement away from kind of this rational, doctrinal self-definition and this, this defensiveness that some sense marks the more traditional, traditionalist version and Sherman, in his book, he, he essentially names Grenz as the leading theologian of this movement. And I think, again, in many ways, if we think about this two-part taxonomy between conservative theology, liberal theology, which is the beliefs and confessions we hold to, and then we add in this other spectrum of um, traditionalists and uh, post-conservatives, epistemological spectrum, what, what we start to see emerge is that it's possible for someone to hold to conservative theological beliefs while being open to more nuanced and generous understandings of how truth functions um, in this post-conservative way. And in many ways, that is what Grenz as a thinker is embodying. He is, again, if you line up his confessional beliefs um, he fits the bill almost perfectly with conservative evangelicalism and its American expression. But then in the contours of how he practices that and how he organizes his thought and how he engages culture and scripture, um, it's very different than what has traditionally been done. So the rest of the series of this lectures will basically be us exploring and evaluating Grenz's thoughts and you know, trying to dialogue and discuss and ask ourselves, did he accomplish that goal? Is it possible to maintain um, a historic, biblical, what, what we might call orthodox view 
Christianity and embrace some of these postmodern epistemological commitments? Or, like some of his contemporaries feared, does Grenz kind of doom his theology to uh, relativism and a loss of any truth or claim to authority? So that's the question and that we're going to engage and evaluate together. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.